Welcome to Wicked Crime, a Massachusetts true crime podcast. In this last episode of the Danny Croto series, I'm going to be tying up all the loose ends with the case and get into what happened to everyone who's both dead and alive that were involved. Thank you for listening to this story so far, and here is episode 5, the last episode of the murder of Danny Croto. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, I talked about Levine and how he would groom and then abuse children, and also what was happening with some of the other priests in the area, and even around the country and the world. But mostly this podcast is meant to focus on Massachusetts, and this particular story on Springfield itself, and how corrupt the Springfield Diocese was, particularly in the case of Father Levine. At this point in the case, Levine has already been put on trial, he's been accused, He's gotten off with his 10 years probation, with time he's meant to spend at St. Luke's to rehabilitate himself for what he's gone through, and he was still a priest for a long time after what happened. After Levine's trial in 1991, the Crotos, Bunny and Carl, Danny's parents, they go to the current Hamden County DA, who at that time was William Bennett, and they make an appeal to him to reopen Danny's case and investigate more into it. Now that Levine's out as an abuser, this may seem like the right time for this to be happening. And Bennett quietly agrees to do this, and he's obviously a bit less problematic than the previous DA, who was Maddie Ryan, who I have mentioned Maddie Ryan throughout this whole podcast, how he was sort of a key factor into why things didn't go the way they should have gone in the case. I think it's sort of easy to say, well, did Ryan help cover up this in some way, which I don't want to go down that road too far because I think that's a whole bigger conspiracy theory. Do I think it's impossible? No, I don't think anything's necessarily impossible. Do I think it's improbable? Yes. Because the way he handled the crime scene and the evidence that ends up going missing, to me it's just suspicious. I think anyone would consider it suspicious too. He was also close friends with the bishop, who was Christopher Weldon, and Weldon was an abuser. And being an abuser, it was pretty likely that Weldon was protecting abusive priests like Levine, just like Bishop Dupree later protected Levine and let him stay as a priest for like 11 years after he was convicted of abuse. And it was even a registered sex offender, so he was allowed to stay a priest even though all these things happened. And why would Dupree allow that? Well, he was also an abusive member of clergy. So it's all this circle of abusive people protecting other abusers, and it's just, it's, it's terrible. So I guess when we talk about the theory that Ryan might have helped cover up this murder is the question of, did Weldon give Ryan a heads up about Danny's murder? Or did he give the order for someone to get rid of this evidence in the murder case? Because when Bennett goes to reopen this case, he discovers all this evidence missing. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, though. Ryan was sort of mixed up in a lot of difficult things, though. He was friends with mobsters in Springfield. He was friends with the bishop. And when it comes out later that Bishop Weldon was abusing kids, we find out that he was abusing Ryan's nephews. And these two boys were members of the Circle Gang, which was that local gang of like rough kids who hung out in 16 acres, who Levine tried to frame in some, or I shouldn't say he tried to frame, I should say they believe he might have tried to frame them for Danny's murder. And he made that suspicious phone call to the Crotto house at Danny's wake. But when Ryan finds out that his nephews were abused, his response was, and this is quoted in Fleming's book, they're not my kids, they're my sister's kids. As if it makes it less problematic that 
oh, they weren't his kids, so he can kind of wipe his hands of it. It has nothing to do with me. Why are you even asking me almost? But I think at the end of the day, Ryan was kind of scared. Like, he was scared to go against the church and push an investigation that might lead to accusing a priest of murder. Because that had never happened before. Once again, this is 1972. A priest had never been accused of murder. It was a time where I don't think a lot of people could even imagine a priest was abusing kids. So so forget even about them committing a murder. Just even the fact that priests were abusing was like completely out of left field. Even though it was very prevalent back then, I don't think a lot of people wanted to acknowledge it. And a lot of people didn't know what was happening because they weren't talking. Like I mentioned in the last podcast, the boys who were being abused didn't talk to each other about it because they thought they were alone, that no one else was going through this. But I think Ryan didn't want to dive deeper in this case because maybe he had a feeling that something was connected to the church. Maybe there was some sort of tip off to him that, hey, you should send your guys down to the river where this body is. There's something going on there. I think that that's a really like hard thing to try and pin onto Maddie Ryan and Bishop Weldon. Fleming kind of argues that this could have happened, but we don't know for sure. And I think you're also saying that, oh, the freaking Handon County DA had something to do with this in that he was trying to cover up for the church. And I hope that wasn't the case, but as I said, we don't actually know. But the thing is, like, him not looking into this deeper allowed a murderer to go free, no matter who it was. It might not have been Levine. And he never actually looked too hard into these other suspects that I listened in the previous episodes. Especially the men who were involved in the Boy Scouts, who easily could have been involved. But now with Bennett in charge, there was a hope that this case might get some new traction. Here's a new guy in, in charge. He can dive deeper. He might not be afraid to go after a priest now that it's been uncovered that the main murder suspect is actually an abuser. But here we are in 1993 at this point, so a couple years pass before things really start getting going back in with this case because Bennett does reopen it. And though DNA testing is available at this point, it's not like as developed as as it is today. And granted, I don't know that much about like the evolution of DNA testing, but you can only imagine that it's got to be better now in 2020 than 1993. So Bennett discovers all his evidence is missing when he decides to reopen it. And the murder weapon is obviously a big one. I mean, there's no like blood in it besides Danny's. And that's kind of like the main thing they were going off of was blood. So we just have Danny's DNA on the murder weapon, but it is gone. Obviously, that's kind of a big deal. There's some rocks that were found at the scene that were gone. There's the tire impression that's gone. And there's these like bloody towels that are gone that police had taken from Levine's house and they had never tested them or anything. So these towels, I mean, could they have had Danny's blood on them? We don't know. Could they have had just Levine's blood on them? We don't know. Couldn't have maybe not been blood at all? We don't know because they are now missing. But Bennett does order some DNA testing and he sends this bloody straw from the scene to Dr. Edward Blake in California. And he was like renowned at DNA testing at the time. He worked on the O.J. Simpson case. And in order for this to all happen, they needed to get DNA or blood was what they went for from Levine. So police actually took Levine into the hospital. They drew his blood after the judge gave a court order, but it couldn't be used without court approval. So they have the blood, but it's just sitting there. And they really can't do anything with it because it has to get approved. So Carl Croto, Danny's father, he makes like a really excellent point in all this. And he goes, if he's got nothing to hide, why is he hiding? If I knew a blood test would clear me of a murder, I would bring a gallon of it in. And I have to agree with him. Like, if you didn't do it, then then what are you afraid of? Just give him your blood. Like, tell him, hey, take it. Clear me. I wasn't there. Here's how we're going to prove it. But the thing is, Levine and his lawyer, who's Max Stern, they were resistant. And a lot of people couldn't understand this. Like, why are you resistant? Like, if you weren't there, just give him the blood. Like, how is this going to 
be a problem. So obviously, to me, it makes you look kind of guilty if that's the case. And the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court wouldn't allow the blood to be tested since Levine wasn't actually charged with anything. Even though he was considered the prime suspect, nothing ever came of it. It was just police thought he was the prime suspect. Here's some like fishy evidence, but it's not enough to actually take him to court for murder. So the judicial court doesn't let him test the blood. Eventually, though, Levine agrees for them to test the blood. And this kind of surprised some people, but it was the same thing of like, well... If you have nothing to hide, why can't we test your blood? And so that's kind of what happened. And the thing is, why didn't they let him test the blood initially? Well, the story was that Bennett told Max Stern, Levine's lawyer, that even if the DNA test came back negative, I'm still going to look at Levine. So I guess they sort of saw it as, well, even if I give my blood and prove I wasn't there, they're still going to bother me and come after me. So I'm kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't. But at the same time, like, wouldn't you want the DNA to prove that you weren't there? But we're going to get to that. So the samples Bennett sent to California weren't good. There really wasn't much to go off of. They were very old, they were degraded, and small. There wasn't a lot of material on them, there wasn't a lot of blood. Blake, the DNA expert, argued that DNA can only eliminate a suspect. So even if Levine wasn't a match, it didn't prove that he wasn't there. Just that his DNA wasn't on the straw. So Blake, he did the testing and he determined that it was inconclusive and the DNA was fairly common and present in more than 10% of males. So Blake pretty much says that they really didn't have enough evidence to go off of and if this is all the evidence that they have, forget it. So one of Levine's lawyers said that them labeling it as inconclusive would be proposing something weird happened, like two people's blood got mixed together other than Danny's. But so what if two people were there? I guess what she was going off of this other lawyer was that, well, if it's two people's blood, then it's inconclusive and the sample doesn't matter anyway. But wasn't that sort of like what Fleming was proposing in the, his whole book was that what if there were two attackers there? What if killer wasn't left-handed? He was right-handed and Danny was attacked from behind while he was focused on someone else. I think that's kind of a lot to throw out there. It's a very like broad theory, but maybe there were two people there. Regardless, they didn't send more evidence and Levine refused to keep cooperating So on October 26, 1994, Bennett closed the investigation and there was no more DNA testing and he decided that was that. Yet there were other investigators like R.C. Stevens who offered help, but he didn't take it. So it was pretty much like, well, we tested this little bit of evidence. There wasn't even that much to go off of, but we tested it. It's inconclusive and that's all we're going to do. So even though he kind of made it sound like he was going to keep pushing at the case no matter what, he didn't. And I think that once you get DNA evidence or you get results from a DNA test, it's that's pretty much finalized for a lot of people. But not to get even further down like a conspiracy theory hole here, if you ever watch Making a Murder on Netflix, there's a lot of stuff that happens with DNA and like blood getting put places and like things not getting analyzed the way they're supposed to be analyzed. And it sends Stephen Avery, who's the subject of the documentary, to jail for murder. But then he has a um a lawyer come in, Kathleen Zellner, who like completely like reanalyzes the entire crime scene And it makes you wonder, like, well, DNA, they tend to think it's like the end-all be-all, which I think in a lot of cases it is. But when you have sort of this weird, murky evidence, like it's inconclusive and there wasn't a big enough sample and it's 1993, I think that there definitely is a case of, well, we should reanalyze some of this evidence or retest it with other, with DNA. And also they were only testing it to Levine's DNA. There were these other suspects that were never compared to this sample. So I guess what I mean is, I don't think some cases are so cut and dry, and that maybe it takes someone like a Kathleen Zellner to come in and really 
examine a case in such a way that wasn't done at the time to see things in a different light and that one little DNA test off of some shitty bits of evidence might not always be the deciding factor. But Bennett took it as this was it, we're closing the case. And the case, I don't think it's technically active right now, but no one has gone in and tried to solve it again like Bennett did since 1993. And we are now in 2020. My biggest question is though, where did this evidence go? It didn't just walk off. Now, if someone purposely got rid of it, did they do so knowing it could convict a priest and they didn't want that? Could Ryan have been told to get rid of it by Weldon? Once again, if we believe that, then we're assuming that Ryan knew more and purposely was trying to bury it. Impossible? No. Police covered up abuse cases for years with the church and even the Boy Scouts of America. But this is probably improbable. Because you can't... Can, I mean, can you imagine that someone, like, purposely in the police department knew that I'm going to get rid of this evidence because it might prove that a priest abused someone? But then again, where did it go? So, something strange happened over the years. I don't think that I would, or I would hope that evidence isn't treated so loosey-goosey over where it's kept, but I don't know. And even so, it wasn't like the evidence that had someone else's DNA went missing. Like, there were still things like the straw that had blood on it. And mind you, when they sent that straw off to California, that was it for it. They used the rest of the DNA on it. So here's another resource that was exhausted during this testing that they can't test again. But like the murder weapon going missing, how is that going to matter? Because it has Danny's DNA on it, not the killer's. And even the tire, the tire print, how is that going to make a difference if it's there or not? Because it's not like they're going to be able to find the tire from 1972 that this print came off of. Because in the book, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in a previous episode, in the book, Fleming says that a Chicopee police officer said that Levine did change his tires on his car after the murder. So I really doubt that those tires are floating around somewhere, and obviously they weren't properly checked anyway back when this was all happening. So during this time, all the case files were released to the public, and it was actually kind of a fight at one point because they didn't want to, like, impede the investigation, but eventually they were released. You can actually go and look at everything on Bishop Accountability, the website um, I mentioned in the last episode where you can look up members of the church that were accused of abuse. I'm going to link that in my blog and my on my website, which is wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. And you can actually go in and look at a bunch of evidence and court documents and all that. It is a lot of information, but it, it, it is all online. And so just like that, Danny's case is closed again. Levine continues to get accused and cost the church millions in settlements, yet he technically remains a priest for a long time, even though he's a registered sex offender, like I said. And he remains a priest until 2004. If you actually go on the sex offender registry, you can see his picture. He has to go in every few years and take another picture. You can see all the ones in the past that he's done. I'll probably link that on my blog as well. And after Levine told Bunny that he wasn't going to talk to them again, he never did. Though Carl did run into him occasionally, he never spoke to the Croto family again. And that was probably for the best because I'm sure once the Crotos believed that he was the one that killed their son, I doubt that that would have ever been mended between them. And now he lives in Chicopee. Father Levine does. I have driven by his house. It's kind of not difficult to spot if you go by it. He has this kind of strange painting of a son he did on his garage door, but he lives there in Chicopee. My aunt sees him at Stop and Shop a lot on the weekends. I have never seen him. I don't know if I'd be able to pick him out, but he's still alive. He is still wandering around. There was times after the investigation that police did go to his house. There was one time they actually seized his computer. They didn't find anything on it, but it did happen. There really hasn't been much from him since this whole trial and DNA happened. 
And so now he's just sort of living his life. He's not on the church's payment plan or insurance plan anymore ever since he was defrocked. I'm not sure if we ever even had another job or what really became of him after that. I just know that he is still alive and still living in the area. Cases are still being settled with abuse. And the Springfield Diocese, though slightly apologetic, was never very helpful to victims. The police disclosed the possibility of abuse back in 1972 when Danny was murdered, but the church did nothing. So they knew back then. The police, I think it was, it was either Radwanski or Stobierski who said, you know, we were obligated to show our cards. And they had told the church what they thought was going on and they really didn't do anything. They, they knew that abuse was happening. Not even in Danny's case, but in other cases, and they just covered it up, which is what dioceses did across the country. And there were other priests that knew what was going on. They did nothing. They would catch Levine abusing kids and they did nothing. And I'm sure that there were some that we don't even know caught Levine and still did nothing. Abuser priests like Alfred Graves were allowed to work at schools. Most of the Holy 13, the sex abuse ring, they were defrocked. Most weren't actually convicted because of the statute of limitations. So a lot of these men, though they lost their ability to be priests, they weren't ever actually, like, convicted. I mean, there was Father Geegan in Boston. He went to jail for 10 years and was killed. But a lot of priests didn't have to serve time because it was past the point where it mattered. The statute of limitations was over. Which, to me, honestly, is bullshit. Like, if you, no matter what, what, what time you abused a kid, I don't care if it was 50 years ago, you still did it. And I'm not saying, like, oh, let's put this 85-year-old man in jail, like I said last podcast. You shouldn't, I, I understand the problematic thing with that. But... Regardless of the crime you committed, you still committed it, and there should be something that happens other than, oh, let's just throw money at these poor victims and, like, hope they go away, which is what the church did. Because many victims, they turned to drugs and alcohol. Others committed suicide or died of overdoses. One victim referred to the abuse as suicide on the installment plan. Another victim of Donald DeSellis described what happened after the abuse. You can't touch. You can't love. You can't give a guy a handshake. You can't allow women to touch you, even clothed. You don't allow anybody to get into your personal space. So yes, they got money from the church, but that really can't heal the trauma from abuse. And in some points, you're giving all this money to people who are like drug abusers, and you know that that's where it's going to go to, and it's just terrible. And if you think too hard about it, like I've thought about it too hard throughout researching this whole thing, it's just a very dark thing. Fleming also mentions that Levine was looked at for other deaths at the time. So there was a seven-year-old Granby boy that was drowned in 1965. Now, I couldn't find anything about this. I, like, researched it. I tried to look up deaths in Granby, seven-year-old boy in Granby, the year, everything, and I just, I could not find a single thing about it. I tried to track down Fleming's source about it, and I really couldn't figure it out. So I don't know too much about that one or where he got that from. But the other murder was 12-year-old James Bernardo, who was an altar boy from Pittsfield, Mass. So his body was found in New York in the 1990s. And though the, the police did, like, look at Levine as a possible suspect, later it comes out that he was killed by serial killer Lewis Lent. Now, Fleming doesn't mention him in the book, so I think when he wrote it, Lent hadn't either confessed to that murder or he hadn't been found out yet. But I'm actually going to cover Lent in a later episode because he does sort of have this connection to Levine and Jimmy Bernardo from Pittsfield. But he was a child serial killer. As for the Crotos, both Greg and Michael, Danny's brothers, they've passed away. Greg died in his sleep at age 60 after suffering from a brain tumor and AIDS. And he died October 1st of 2015. Michael developed liver cancer and died at the age of 51 on May 22nd, 2009. 
Carl Jr., Catherine, and Jacqueline are all still alive and they still live in the area. As for Bunyan and Carl, they still faithfully went to church like almost every day, even though of everything that happened to Danny haunted them. They had 17 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, and one of them was actually named Danielle after Danny. Carl worked for the housing authority for a long time and he would secretly actually help these needy people get Section 8 housing over those who local politicians were trying to like unfairly get get in to the system. So no one knew it was him and he was like this big thorn in the side of all these people that were trying to get their like buddies into this housing who weren't on the list and people referred to him as the angel of mercy but it was Carl who was like trying to help these people which I think is really awesome. So he died on Veterans Day in 2010 at 79. His wake was held at St. Catherine's and he was the only person to ever have a wake there until Bunny passed away November 10th 2016 at 80 years old. So one of the things that Bunny said about the aftermath of all this was April is the toughest month, the cruelest month. It all comes back with a vengeance. It feels like it happened yesterday. Time heals some, but it doesn't heal all. The pain doesn't go away. And all the Crotos are actually buried together at Hillcrest Cemetery on Parker Street, right down the street from St. Catharines, right near where they lived on Ferncliff Ave. And then and Hillcrest Cemetery is a place where Danny used to fish. And after a lot of searching one day, I did find them and I paid my respects. It's sort of hard to imagine that this person whose story I followed is buried there and it's actually right near where my grandparents are buried. It's hard to believe that Levine lived so close to me and used to visit the Tessiers next door to my grandma's house. I'd driven by the crime scene too, but it's it's impossible to drive into like the killer would have that night because they built another bridge further down the road and they had to elevate the road and they added a guardrail. So you can't just drive into it like you once used to be able to. I'd driven by St. Catherine's, St. Mary's, where Levine was preaching when Danny was murdered, where my grandfather used to go to church until this whole thing happened and he stopped. I've driven down Ferncliff Ave to see where the Crotos lived, right down the street from where my great-aunt Patty raised her kids. I've talked to men who knew Danny, who knew Levine. It's hard to imagine that things were like that back then, that I know people who knew the people involved in this case. And I think about Danny a lot now, especially when I drive around the city and wonder, like, was he driving around here? Was he with Levine and his red Mustang driving around these places? And I know Springfield's a lot different now. I mean, it's been, it's been 48 years, but... This case, if anything, has had me thinking about Danny a lot. And so I think about how this kid was murdered and we still have no idea what really happened and that his killer never got found. And I'm hoping that maybe Anthony Galuni, our current Handon County DA, decides to open this case again and really try and get more DNA testing, even though there's not a lot to go by. But even if even they do different things like genetic testing or they try and get things from more of the suspects, I know at this point, it's probably almost impossible because of how long ago this case was, but still. I think that there's no way that the church could have covered their abuse forever, especially with the way things are now. I just wish something was done sooner and that more priests were forced to serve time because so many lives were destroyed because of the church and this was probably happening for centuries in different ways throughout time. The Crotos died without justice for Danny and that like really breaks my heart. I can only hope that things like Fleming's book and the Hell's Acres blog will help raise awareness about this case, even this podcast. Like, I know I don't have a ton of listeners, but I know the few of you that do listen are learning about this case. I'm hopefully are talking about this case and that maybe things like this can help other people who who might know something come forward. Even if it's like a stupid little detail, anything is important. And you can contact the Hannon County Sheriff's Department with any tips about this case. They are accepting them. I'll put the number on 
my website. But this case was like one of the main reasons I wanted to do a podcast. Because Danny's story and the details aren't very known, except by locals who lived through it. But it's something that like I would hear about and then forget about and then hear about and forget about. And I'd delve deeper in and then forget about a little bit. But I got to a point where like I couldn't forget about this anymore. And I just, I really wanted to tell more people about it. And there was a long time where if ever you talked to me and you had any interest in true crime, I was like spouting information to you about this whole case. I actually submitted this case to Crime Junkie Podcast months ago, but they never covered it. And I assume they probably get a lot of entries, so I get why they didn't. And it's also kind of a sensitive topic. Going at the Catholic Church and talking about abuse, not everyone's really into that. A lot of people don't want to address it and look it in the face, but it did happen. It might still be happening. And it's not something to forget about. I chose not to name a lot of specific victims because I wanted to honor their privacy to some extent. Now, they are named in news articles and Fleming's book, but it's their stories that helped not only send Levine to court and become a registered sex offender, but they cost the diocese millions, and rightfully so. And their story shouldn't be forgotten. And I hope the best for them, their families, and the people who never came forward. Because I know there's people out there who suffered and just never got to express what happened to them. And if you want to know more about these victims and more about these stories, I would really recommend reading the book Death of an Altar Boy by E.J. Fleming, where a lot of this information came from. Or even if you don't want to commit to the full book, the Hell's Acres blog is a great source of information. It does talk more about victims, so if you want to know more about them and their stories, it's in there as well. So I am recording this podcast on April 15th, 2020. Danny would have been 61 years old, and today is the anniversary of his death, and it's been 48 years since that day. It's impossible to really know what would have happened with Danny, but he never got the chance to live a full life, despite what sort of trauma he would have had to endure. So I hope that this case is something that you're going to keep in the back of your head, that maybe someone will one day help get solved. I want to thank everyone for listening, for following down this this path. I know this episode didn't have much going for it, but I didn't want to make an episode that was like three hours long about this whole case because I knew there was way more information than that. And so I want to thank my, my best friend Ashley for suggesting I turn this into a series. I do plan to keep going with this podcast. There's a lot of other cases I want to cover. The next one I think is a big Springfield conspiracy theory, I guess you could say. It's a case that when it was happening, it definitely was problematic with a lot of people. And I'm going to be covering the mysterious death of Ashim Bailey and Andrew Pearson and how it might be connected to the smiley face killers. So I'm currently researching that right now. But once again, I just want to thank everyone for listening, for supporting me and and making me feel like I'm not a crazy person for attempting this at all. So if you want to find me, you can find me on Facebook. I have a Twitter, which is wicked underscore crime. I have a website, which is wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. I'm also going to post a link to my podcast hosting website for those of you who don't have Spotify or Apple Podcasts, because that way you can just listen to it directly instead of having to deal with these other platforms. My theme song is by Kevin McLeod. I'm going to post pictures and sources in the blog post about everything I mentioned today. So once again, thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. Take care of yourself. Look after yourself. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.